I'm Roger Rosenblatt, and this is Word for Word. The Writer as Detective Since nine-year-olds didn't wear suit jackets, I had to carry my revolver in a jury-rigged shoulder holster under my polo shirt. The look was that of a kid who had just snitched a mango from a fruit stand and was unsuccessfully trying to conceal it. The cap gun was cold against my chest, yet I maintained a grim professional demeanor, lest my suspects spot any weakness and get the upper hand. I trailed them among the secret stores and wholesale houses of New York's East Twenties, a neither-here-nor-there area north of Gramercy Park, where I lived. The area looked innocuous enough, but clearly was teeming with crime. The businessmen I shadowed also looked harmless to anyone but me. I trailed them at short distances, making it easy for them to notice me, because if the killer did not know he was being followed, no one else would either. I saw myself as acting simultaneously in real time and in a film noir, so I was both tracking my quarry and watching myself do it. For his part, the killer, sensing danger, were turned around from time to time, confused and annoyed at being pursued by a kid with a mango in his shirt. My reasons for taking up the detective business were the usual ones. I was bored by my parents, my school, my respectable neighborhood, and by childhood. I was bored to death by childhood. The more fundamental reason, however, was that I loved living in a mystery. Thus, though I hardly knew it at the time, I was becoming a writer. Or to be more accurate, I was thinking and feeling like a writer. E.L. Doctorow likened his writing process to driving at night, when you can see only as far as the headlights illuminate, a film noir image if ever there was one. This method will take you only so far, since at some point in the act of writing, the end of the book will crook its siren finger and beckon you to leap into the light. Yet it is in the darkness where the thrills occur, and the lurid pictures, and the base thoughts, and the strange words to describe them, and you giddily are lost among unseen and unheard of things. Writers answer questions no one asks. Others tell you what they know. Writers imagine what they know. So we move about our odd trade, looking as weird as kid detectives on the street, pursuing criminals of our own manufacture and making nuisances of ourselves. We trust the dark as others trust the light, not to solve our mysteries, but to hold us in their thrall. When we approach something that smacks of a solution, it is disappointing. We try to hold it off. At the end of The Thin Man, Nick Charles assembles his suspects at a dinner party before exposing the killer. He prattles on until Nora, impatient and frustrated, demands to know who did it. Nick says he doesn't know. He seems to be stalling. The mystery of the thin man is so delicious, who would want it solved? In fact, Nick isn't stalling. He really doesn't know who the killer is until the killer reveals himself. Nick has simply made the revelation inevitable after following enough shady people down enough grimy streets. As a writer, you create characters who act differently than you ever supposed, circumstances that change shape and direction, sentences that seem to emerge from a trance. Ideas occur to you you never knew you had, opinions you never knew you held. Only reluctantly do you concede that the mystery must eventually get hold of itself and come to order. By at once dwelling in the mystery and containing it, 
Writing makes life occasionally beautiful, nearly tolerable. A nice conspiracy is afoot here, as readers, too, revel in the mystery. Writers get better at the craft once we learn to assume that the reader will do much of the work for us, filling in the blanks with their own experiences and lives. Plant a few key pieces of evidence, and your reader will dream up the connections. It's what Darwin did, after all. Now, Darwin, there was one hell of a mystery writer. It's what we do with all our invisibles. As the prosecution held at the first O.J. Simpson trial, the absence of evidence does not constitute evidence of absence. Still, living in the mystery is not the same as floundering in it. There is an underlying purpose to a writer's detective work, I believe, which has to do with catching bad guys. I know this may sound like an extravagant claim, corny too, but I think that we writers enjoy tromping around in the murky zones of good and evil, right and wrong, justice and injustice, so that in the long run we may settle on the good, the right, and the just. We may traffic in murder and madness and cultivate the seediness of the private op, but when it comes down to it, we want to rescue our reader clients, however surprised we may be to rediscover our innocent sense of honor every time we string words together. At heart, most of us are Sam Spade in the Maltese Falcon. When he is about to hand over the many alias Bridget O'Shaughnessy to the cops for killing his partner, Miles Archer. She asks if Archer meant more to him than she does. She loves him, she says, and he loves her. He says he doesn't know if that's so, but he lives by a code. His struggle is moral. He won't let her go free, he says, because all of me wants to, and because, God damn you, you counted on that. The plain truth is that Miss O'Shaughnessy is evil, which makes her his enemy, Sam's enemy. She asks if he would have acted so high-mindedly if the black bird had proved real, and he had been paid his money. He says, don't be so sure I'm as crooked as I'm supposed to be. That sort of reputation might be good for business, making it easier to deal with the enemy. All writers are mystery writers. We may not employ detectives in our work, but as seekers of guilty parties, we can identify with Nick Charles, Sam Spade, Lou Archer, Miss Marple, and the rest. Like them, we muck about in a world studded with clues, neck deep in motives. Like them, we falter in our investigations and follow wrong leads. We are foolhardy, preposterous, nosy, irritating. No one wants us around. We work alone. Yet, like Sam Spade, we operate within a tradition of our own, of which we are respectfully aware. Write, and you are in the company of all who have written before you. Only when we have finished a piece of work do we know true Shamus loneliness, realizing that the chase is over and that no one has been watching us but us. A movie for writerly romantics appeared in the 1970s called They Might Be Giants with George C. Scott as a glorious nutcase who thinks he's a modern-day Sherlock Holmes, and Joanne Woodward as his psychiatrist companion, Dr. Mildred Watson. Throughout, Scott pursues Professor Moriarty, Conan Doyle's personification of evil, along New York streets until at last, in the final scene, he confronts his nemesis, who confronts him back. I was no longer a boy when I saw that movie, but I was still in the detective business though my office had shifted location to a desk and a soft chair, and I wore a legal pad, not a cap gun, near my chest. Here I remain for as long as I am allowed, 
as the cloud ghosts shroud the skull of the sky, and the air trembles, and the figure of a man, huge and obscure, turns to face ridiculous me.